welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And Introducing, on drums, it's Bill Kreutzmann. Working rhythm for the band that put the jam in jam band, we'll learn all about his humble <laughs> Bay Area beginnings, his three acid-soaked decades in the Grateful Dead, and how everything from the Great Pyramids to San Francisco garbage men is far out. All from his book, Deal, My Three Decades of Drumming, Dreams, and Drugs with the Grateful Dead. It's always got to be an alliteration in your three things in the title, you know? Fishing, f- uh, foals, like the baby horses, and Fudge. French kissing. Yeah. <laughs> Fudge. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's but, a memoir. But then you're, of course, limited because uh, it has to be based on the instrument you play. So you either basically get, what, G, B, D, S, singing. Singing, songs. Violin. Violin. (laughs) Well, we've yet to really uncover a violinist memoir. Boyd Tinsley, who a Twitter follower uh, had told us, uh, did a, he did a bad, he did, he he was a sex pest. He did a bad, a bad thing. Did they kick him out? I don't think they kicked him out. I heard heard they did. Maybe he's back in now, but at the time I thought that he was, uh, canceled and booted. We are, of course, following up on the Dave Matthews Band episode, uh, in which I had also heard that, uh, yeah, another guy, I, Matthew was reminding me that another, a different guy did, yeah, a, they, did they, a bad thing that they kicked out another guy who was a sex pest. So maybe it was Boyd Tinsley that he was referring to. Yeah. Um, which is another reason like fleeing South Africa. So you won't get drafted into their apartheid, uh, yeah. military. Another good on you for Dave. Matthews. Good on you, Dave. <laughs> and that's our segment called good, good on, on you, Dave, Dave, where each episode will figure out a new thing to compliment Dave Matthews. on. <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping 2020. This energy it's in 2020 is squad, yeah. yeah, it's strong. Anyway, we, we're, we have a guest to introduce. We're, we're not that ta- isn't Dave Matthews. We're not talking about Dave Matthews. Uh, this week we're talking about, uh, the, 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 progenitors of Dave Matthews. That is the Grateful Dead. And welcome back to the pod, accepting his two-time challenge coin. Three. Uh, three? three? Big three, is, baby. this is three, yeah. We did, we did Wilco. We did... Uh, oh, and we did Fish Nathan Raven. Yes. Yeah. This is yeah, the yeah. three-timers club. Wow. You might be inaugurating the three-timers club. Yeah. It's Ben Ferky. Welcome back to the pod, Ben. Thank you so much. This is a great honor, and um, I'm sorry to all the listeners. That We're this is very <laughs> grateful to have you here. Third... Uh, grateful... Yeah. yeah, we're yeah. grateful we're like the dead. Yeah, hey. and we won't be dead after this, I think. Hopefully. Some of our listeners may. This is front-loading a lot of jam into 2020. We can't help it. Yeah. It's jam time, baby. Yeah, it is jam. When we already covered fish, so. We did. Where, where else is there to go? <laughs> uh, we got to get a, does the guitarist from Mo have a... Uh, it's pronounced Mo? Mo. Well, what about, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just waiting on a, a nice memoir from someone from Hot Tuna <laughs> or the Disco Biscuits. Yes. Uh, the, you use some Jamtronica in, yes. in this bitch. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So if anyone knows of those, uh, I don't want to Google it. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> anyway. I just I just want a book to finally tell me how to pronounce that band that's G-O-V apostrophe T mule. Like, is it government mule or is it govet mule? Govet like, mule. Guffed mule. Yeah. Govet mule. mule. Yeah. Govet mule. Yeah. Like, I would like a book that, that tells yes. me that too. That'd be good. Uh, anyway, so here we talked about to talk about Grateful Dead through their drummer. Uh, should we go around and, and say what Grateful Dead means to me? Yes. <laughs> uh, ben, what does Grateful Dead mean to, to ye? Well, um, I kind of talked about this, I think, on the, the Jeff Tweedy episode um, because you guys accidentally helped um, dead pill me into this newfound obsession. <laughs> okay. Dead pill. I, I, felt, I felt proud of that Very one. good. Very good. <laughs> but um, so basically, like, the story there was that um, after listening to Fish to prep for the Fish episode, I 
was just hanging out by myself one night and thought, are the Grateful Dead as bad as fish? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, I'm the sort of person where if I, if I can't remember the answer to something or if I, I, you know, I need to know it, so I go and I start listening to a couple of Grateful Dead songs, and I'm like, okay, oh, they're, they're not so bad. And then I keep going, and then it's like cut to like two years later. Um, Spotify told me that I listened to them more than any artist in the decade, which is yeah. extremely impressive <laughs> because I started listening to them in March of 2018. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> which is, well, you know, they, they yeah. certainly have enough material that, you know, you, you can basically never run out of stuff to yeah. keep listening to them There's, about. I'm, I have barely begun to like uh, scrape the surface. I'm like, I'm, you know, I've only got like the top 10% of the, the dead iceberg um, <laughs> covered now. It's a journey. But um, I also just sort of, uh, I kind of have like a recovered memory now. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I got sort of thinking about this, which is, um, uh, so like I, I grew up on like the campus of this like prep school in Connecticut, like insert my usual like self-flagellating about class stuff um, here. And basically one of the, per- <laughs> yep. Always, I mean, it's the sort of thing where it's you just can't help but just be like, oh, like the older you get, like, yeah. God, what a dorky way to grow up. You didn't ask to be born. <laughs> I didn't ask to be born here. <laughs> uh, no, you should you should lead by that, but then say that you uh, grew up as an urchin rummaging around the Yale Library, uh, just scavenging uh, leftover commissary meals that people sent. That there. actually is kind of true in the sense that, like, when the the kids of the prep school would move out at the end of every year, meet like. It was a tradition for all of the faculty kids to go through their like rooms and to like basically try to like scavenge any like stereo equipment or books or like records sure. they left behind and stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've definitely like dumpster dived on a prep school <laughs> campus before. But anyway, so like um, you know, my dad was an employee there, and he we would use the wood shop in the back of their theater occasionally to make like those little like wooden race cars for. I remember Cub those. Scouts. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Pinewood Derby. Yeah, a lot of sanding. I got I got best paint, and I Ooh, got like best, seventh best in the actual like race, which was yeah. The trick is you deal. want to make them real smooth. Yeah. You want to have the smoothest car, so ah. it goes the fastest. Mm. And you can like add like graphite dust to the axles and stuff to mm, kind of like. Yeah. You, but they have like a limit on the <laughs> on the amount of graphite. Anyway, you don't want to get um, caught for juicing juicing your, your pine car. Wood car. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, they'll, they'll take those those participation trophies away like <laughs> but um anyway so like my basically because us using the wood shop means dad using the wood shop me being eight and just sort of like running around and him being like don't uh touch anything sharp or fall and i get and so like i'm on the stage now um like i run out of the wood shop i run out of the stage of the theater and i look up in the wings and about like 20 feet in the air is this giant steal your face skull so if, if you're if you're listening to this you probably know what the steal your face skull is but it's the the skull with the uh, the red, white, and blue skull with the lightning bolt going through the, the head. I didn't know that that thing had a name. Me neither. Now I do. Now it, I do. It has a name. It's from the Steal Your Face album, which is not very good. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. But it produced some uh, god-tier level um, rock and roll iconography. Yeah, they really do. Other than those the stupid uh, laughing marching bears, bears yeah. other than those fucking things you don't <laughs> like the those bane, they're just the bane of every like deadhead's existence <laughs> no the skull's like so much cooler <laughs> yeah exactly they have so much cool oh, skeleton bear. iconography These but, bears um, are fun. but anyway like um the point is i so i see this this skull and it scares the shit out of me and i had for years i had like nightmares about that theater and i couldn't really figure out why and eventually i, I kind of put two and two together and was like oh that probably was it so my first memory of the grateful dead is just being because I, you know, I didn't realize like, oh, they're a uh, lovable, affable, yeah. <laughs> electric yeah. jug band. Yes, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, like yeah. 
uh, literally led by a giant human teddy bear. Yeah. And then I, so I, I kind of got into, I listened to them a little bit in high school and then didn't really go beyond a few of their hits because um, at the time uh, I figured that they were basically doing a similar thing as the band where they're both, the band and the dead both write songs about a mythic old America that probably never existed, mm-hmm. but is fun to think about anyway. Like Bob Dylan also has a lot of songs in that kind of yeah. mode, you know. Do and, the dead do much as much a uh, uh, hagiography of uh, the Confederate South as the band do? Not really. Um, they're, a, they're a West, I feel like they're more of a West yeah. group of dudes, not a South group of dudes. Uh, like, so they don't lament the night they drove on Dixie down. They, they are, um, as far as I can tell, anti-Dixie. Great. Pro vibes. That is the, 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 the two sort of like uh, salient po- like political views of the Grateful Dead are number one, don't be a cop, and then number two, if it feels good, do it. Basically, <laughs> hell yeah, I'm into that. Um, and so, like, I didn't really listen to them until eventually, until you know, I accidentally uh, pilled myself into it. But I think that the thing that actually made it possible for me to even listen to them was that I listened to a lot of. Uh, I went through a, like an experimental music phase with like um, Vexations by like Eric Satie, which is like this which takes like an mm. entire day to perform mm-hmm. and like John Cage, Christian Wolf, Fluxus, Steve Reich, like right. the Steve Reich pieces where it's like he suspends a microphone over amps and it swings like a pendulum and right. it kind of just goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, and so after, and then like I got into like ambient Brian Eno stuff and then sleep, you know, and so after a while, basically, oh, yeah. we should do sleep sometime. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. You know, I sort of tell myself, you know, like, cause there are a lot of reasons to not like the Grateful Dead. Like they're one of the most uh, kind of hated upon classic, rock bands out there and like for a good a lot of good reasons because they are extremely dumb and annoying in a lot of ways that I won't try to defend um, but basically I get to this point where I'm like okay so I'm listening to television do these like interlocking guitar parts I'm listening to sleep make an hour long s- song with one riff that's yeah, all like about smoking weed drone metal album yeah yeah, it's drone and it's like so at this point what like I logic myself into it like what are, you know how can I say no to a 30-minute jam that goes nowhere at this point. You know, I've already made it clear that that's something that I can get down with. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's basically my very roundabout kind yeah. of uh, journey. Look, if you my like... Long, strange trip. If you like, <laughs> uh, like Marky Moon, don't kid yourself about uh, Grateful Dead. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're... they're I mean, not so different, oh, me yes. and them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They uh and they had a similar sort of style where it's of um of having not not a lead and a rhythm guitar. They had basically two leads and one of them was just the more lead, basically. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. um, that's enough out of me. Uh, <laughs> what about you? Guys? No, that's. I mean, I think that's cool to get into it late in life, but have been primed from an early age. Actually, Do you, should I go? Uh, yeah, you go. I didn't. The fr- <laughs> the first I knew of the Grateful Dead was. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Cherry Garcia, Ben and Jerry's flavor, mm-hmm. w- which came out to commemorate Jerry Garcia's death. So Jerry was dead by the time I was aware of Grateful Dead. Uh, no, I don't think anyone was very happy about that. <laughs> but um, I didn't listen. I I honestly still haven't really like actively listened to the Grateful Dead. This I I think this podcast will be uh like I could not name I I could name some Grateful Dead songs. I I like Box of Rain. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic song. Songs of Rain rules. That that was on like you know uh, someone made a mixtape for me and put it on it. And that's that's my experience. So grateful that is like I don't know. Box of Rain is kind of kind of groovy. But yeah, no. I this this podcast will be the first experience of hopefully listening to some choice 
dead nuggets because otherwise I'm, I only know of the, the dead heads and the branding, but not the music itself. So yeah, yeah same uh, friend of the devil. That's a good song. That is a good song. Great I song. know that song too. Uh, that's probably my, the extent of my grateful dead knowledge other than, you know, Jerry Garcia being a, a kind of legendary figure in, in rock and roll uh, history, uh, a, a singular figure. Uh, and they inspired a lot of uh, true believer fans and also kind of created the obsessive jam band touring culture kind of modern concert culture yeah, period in a way at, at, at least, least according to bill in terms of like the the obsess the fan obsessive and stuff and like touring right yeah touring and merch and uh having people follow you and Build creating crazy <laughs> yeah, yeah. like fan experiences that are meant to not just be like the music but who you're around yeah they basically invented like festivals they invented like raves kind of <laughs> like that's yeah. all they, I, I was like that's gonna all say. kind of grateful dead in a way they were like maybe music could be fun to like go to for like a long time and like it's sunny out and like that's chill and, like there's grass and like that's nice and like your friends are there and like her boobs are out and that's kind of cool too like what if that's all music and everyone's like yeah what if it is all music <laughs> yeah that sounds great yeah it sounds good yeah, let's go to a dead concert that's their, that's their <laughs> utopian uh, vision of, yeah. of, of uh, yeah I'd say that also in a lot of ways just like the entire music industry is just a weird perversion of their business model where you make your money from touring your albums, I mean, I think that at this point, like, uh, albums are more or less like a, just a, like a press kit for yeah. artists to just sort of say, all right, this is um, a reason to be in the media. <laughs> yeah. Yes, right. Um, this is a reason to pay attention to me and, uh, you know, give fans, I mean, like, because all that really matters is, like, the handful of U- YouTube songs that you're going to yeah. share and everything. So uh, albums are, you know, they're definitely not a revenue source, really. And then you, you basically just put a ton of material out there to be traded for free by your fans. Um, I mean, the dead, obviously, like their thing was that they were pro bootlegging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, today, like everyone, you know, you can get music off YouTube. It's you can there's like a music on social media. You can it's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so it, the, the main thing was that the dead at least like tr- tried to distribute their like resources a little bit more fairly within their organization because eventually after a while they became like this sort of like monster corporation that ended up swallowing them whole. <laughs> um, the band became a business. The, yeah. the band does become a business. In this. It happened, right, guys. You know, sometimes your favorite band will end up wanting a lot of money, and then sometimes they make decisions that you don't agree with. <laughs> it's not and it. It becomes not about the music, which is like, it's like horrible, man. I, I always thought bands were supposed to, the number one thing, music. Yeah. Number and then two, everything looking else. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Number three, t- I mean, t-shirts. t-shirts. But t-shirts. then once t-shirts become number one, it's a, it's a problem. And once I st- stumbled on that cool skull, it was all over. It was all over. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, great. Let's talk about Bill because Bill, I mean, I don't know a lot personally about the the stories of other uh, dead members and after reading this book I kind of don't <laughs> I kind of don't want to I don't want to know I think it's the, it, you know our our original purpose in starting this podcast was like well, let's let's do me- uh, rhythm section musicians memoirs because the rhythm section they're out in the back they're seeing things that uh, ego driven singers and lead guitarists can't and I think that is true with this guy this guy has you know his third his third eye is open and like maybe his fourth and fifth eye yeah. as well <laughs> but he's also I mean he's a he's a stone cold weirdo so we should let's yeah. talk about Bill um, th- this book is a it's 
it's not it's a as we were saying before we started recording it's very much a like anecdotal uh like, oh, yeah, no, I've got a story from that time. Like, I can just imagine him sitting down with his his uh, co-writer, Benji Eisen, just being like, oh, 1982, 1982. Hold on, man. I got something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was uh, shooting guns out in Utah, like in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, we uh, a bird, my a raven did all my speed. And you don't want to talk to birds on speed. That's true. That, like, is, he, that happened. That happened. Um, that's not me making shit up. So yeah, uh, shall, shall we talk about Bill? Yeah, go for it. He was born on May 7th, 1947. Grew up in Palo Alto, California. Uh, he, he Okay, boomer. Okay, yeah. yeah no, he's, it's, <laughs> he's, he's living it. He's getting it how he lives it now. But um, he, he, was, uh, he calls himself the first deadhead because he sees Jerry Garcia play. So like this is, it's not, uh, making the band is not the hard part of the Grateful Dead. They all just sort of like, sucked together around Jerry Garcia, yeah, who was I mean, a few years older than Bill. Uh, and what does he talk at all about the, this immediate thing? I mean, I can kind of imagine that Jerry Garcia is like a font of weirdo charisma. Like he was somebody that you like yeah, wanted to be around definitely. and he was on a trip that was different. Than but was also mellow. Else. Like he was not like a, he didn't seem like an aggressive guy at all. No, not, yeah. not to a fault actually. Yeah. Um, and so like, yeah, uh, he didn't really go into the what the band was like before he saw them, but originally uh, they were a bluegrass group when it was sure. Jerry and then Bob Weir and then Robert Hunter, who is their lyricist, who's not who doesn't do any musical stuff. He just writes the words. Cool. Yes. Um, they have two lyricists actually. Amazing. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, and so there's like, basically that's sort of, Jerry Garcia is the leader of this bluegrass band, and Bob Weir is Jerry Garcia's sort of disciple within the band, and Jerry's whole thing was that on the one hand, he's sort of the the authoritarian, like, when it comes to the music, when it comes to the direction that they were going with, and like, we're going mm-hmm. to uh, go electric, we're going to start playing longer jams, we're going to... Uh, get really good at knowing when, you know, someone's going to change a key and stuff so we can do it all the same. Do it all this basically. I having played in yeah. bands, I do have to say that uh one of the biggest things uh, the most important things to do is uh starting and stopping at the same time and yeah. playing most of the same notes together. Yeah. You're going to hate this band. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hate this band so much. <laughs> I would say I would even say stopping is more important Stopping at the same time yeah. is more important than starting. Yeah, I mean, true. Yes, yeah. nothing's more embarrassing. You than can TV. always yeah. hop in if you missed your yeah. opening cue. They, yeah, they're they're actually pretty good at um, stopping and starting. Kind of like a big thing what they do is, is they're they're fantastic at hiding each other's mistakes. Mm. Uh-huh. But the um, the other thing about Jerry is that he so he's he had to be kind of like the musical director. But when it came to everything else he really did not like to be in charge of stuff. And so yeah. they're, they're a very weird kind of leaderless band. And that's sort of like a theme that kind of comes up in the, in the book a lot of no one really knowing who's in charge. And yes. like sometimes like Bill is making like business decision, decisions on behalf of the, the rest of the band, the rest of the band. Yeah. Sure. He, he had a great complaint when he, uh, he said they were in Paris once and for whatever reason, their manager at the time had not been like kind of strong enough to act as a manager should, which is to say when a promoter might be, uh, keeping money from them and uh, stiffing them on stuff, a manager is kind of supposed to, you know, shake them down for their their dough. And so, <laughs> uh, Bill and his, I think, a, a, an equipment master are in Paris 
basically turn a promoter upside down and shake him, uh, his shake out his pocket. Literally shake and him And they down. said he was full of fucking Looney Tunes He was full of Franks, full of Franks and bullshit. <laughs> so yes, the, that, the band is uh, without, without a strong top-down leadership, people were taking on roles that were <laughs> outside they of, were their, outside uh, of their, zone, their yeah. comfort zone. Yeah. Although, you know, drummer is, you know, good at beating things, I guess. So he, I mean, the story of Bill's like adolescence and then his absorption into the band is basically just the story of being in the Bay Area in the early to mid 60s, which is to say like Ken Kesey lived nearby. Like people were making acid and just like handing it it out. It was totally the environment. Like I feel like one comparison I kept thinking of was Viv Albertine from the slits who was like, I don't know. We were like living in London and I guess people were wearing weird clothes. And then all the newspapers called it punk. This was just like, people were living. It wasn't like, I want to be in a band. It was like, well, this guy just made me some acid and I took acid and I feel like I'm a raindrop in a huge still like (laughs) body of water. (laughs) And that makes me want to play music. (laughs) Like that's, that's how he got into it. And I think that's, I don't know. Uh, what, what else can you say if you were there, like the I was there? If it, like they were there, yeah. uh, the what last, else are you gonna do? The last time the Chappas and I stayed in uh, San Francisco, we stayed right around the corner from the Big Purple House. Oh, the, the Haight Ashbury, yeah, the Haight Ashbury oh, House. Yeah. I don't know, seemed cool. It, they are <laughs> big a, house. There's big a lot house. of stuff in the book um, about them living together as a band, and like they were definitely. I feel like there's some bands where they everyone's kind of separate. And then there were like, um, there's this one kind of band, and then there's this other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to set it up like a dichotomy, but um, there's some bands that are that are that maintain separate lives, and they very much for probably longer than they should have did not do that, yes. and would like would live together in this in like a house for like six weeks until they got kicked out mm-hmm. or they they figured out they couldn't afford to live there they or moved on to the next place or whatever. Yeah, yeah. they were like Someone actually actually want, we want to live in Los Angeles now, and they lived in L.A. for couple of months and then move back sure you know? yeah but they were they definitely have a very sort of like clubhouse uh treehouse almost kind of like vibe like come on in like, yeah yeah we all got our guitars and tabs uh this sounds extremely obnoxious to live there if you were not a member of the band oh my god they were i think if you were not a <laughs> member of the band you were probably even more stoked because you were probably eating their food and smoking their pot I guess, but then they're probably constantly playing Grateful Dead songs. Well, it depends on whether you, you enjoy those or not. Do we want to uh, hear a little uh, yeah. sip or something? Is there anything yeah, like early... from the very early era? So the very, very early, I would not recommend listening to anything. If you're like um, new to the Grateful Dead, uh, please don't listen to any. First of all, don't listen to any studio album, pretty much other than Working Man's Dead or American Beauty. Like they have some highlights here and there, but mostly the studio albums are ways for fans to learn lyrics <laughs> for the show. Okay. And you'd be like, oh, it's this one. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but from like 68 on, uh, when they sort of, they actually have the main kind of like original core assembled and they sort of have like an identity, they begin to get good. So this is from, uh, I'm picking this at random from the uh, archive.org Grateful Dead page which has 2,000 shows or something like that. Great. Um, so this is St. Stephen. Sound quality is very rough. Just a heads up. I dig it. So if you're wondering if this is, they're going to do this for like a while. 
Cool. Um, so this is their sort of what they're uh, they're they're they kind of nicknamed the Primal Dead era. Mm-hmm. So this is they've got um, Billy Kreutz on the drums. You got. Jerry Garcia on guitar. You have Bob Weir uh, on rhythm guitar and co-lead vocals. Mm-hmm. You have Phil Lesh on bass, and then you have Pigpen on organ, <laughs> and then Mickey Hart on uh, also on drums. So you have t- the original two, two drummers. drummers. Two drummers. See, this is this should be a, a yeah, pro for be, you. This is a big pro. This is a big du- double double, double rhythm boy. Especially if they aren't pulling anything fancy, they're just doing the same part together. They're um so this 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 period they um were really into playing very intricate kind of like they refer to it as in like the book as um being one drummer with eight limbs sure yeah and so they would do a lot more kind of like interlocking shit um I'll play um I'll find a version of China Cat hang on so there's a song called uh, China Cat Sunflower mm-hmm. that's also a big um fan favorite they played it at pretty much every show for like the first 10 years Damn. of their existence. So there are approximately 10,000 versions of this available. Yep. Which one is this from? This is from the Avalon Ballroom on uh, 1969. May 5th. You got you to get specific because I'm sure there's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, is this a lot all, of is arguments. Is that the St. Stephen one? St. Same, same Stephen, Stephen was from uh, uh, Fillmore West, 1969. Uh, June 7th, which I believe is Bill Kreutzman's birthday, because other he, they played other shows on that date, and they sing him Happy Birthday. Nice. No. 1967, you said? Yeah, or 69. Sorry. And so you can hear, like, they're they're doing kind of, like, a little yeah, interplay yeah. where, like, they're, they're working in the cowbell, and, like, all the... So it's a very... It's almost like a whimsical, like, old-timey kind of thing. And then, uh, yeah, that's basically the sort of our... This is very early dead, just kind of yeah. riffing. <laughs> just jamming. For a while at the time, cats on the flower bell, walking jiggle in the midnight sun. Pop, but don't vote it triple silver. Come on, I like so, yeah, um, we'll they do, they do this song in like a completely different style, just like a couple years later that I might... Like just sort of just to give everybody a sense of uh, how these things their evolve. growth. Yeah, yeah, and like the difference between the two drummer setup and the one drummer setup. Like I'm already, by the way, just like just knee deep in the, the weeds. Of, <laughs> it seems like, there's no other way. It really is like um, like it takes over your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just so much material. There's so much to get obsessed about. Yeah, and then like you, yeah. There's a, there's just an infinite amount of ways that you can lose well, yourself. I can also tell from the quality of these recordings is that you can kind of hear everything that each individual person is doing. Yeah. Uh, so it gives you a lot of stuff to compare between these things. If you, I'm sure if you listen to it enough, you can like hear like, oh, and this one, Weir plays his lead like this, and then a few years later, he's playing. Most of the other guys are doing something similar, but he's yeah. got a totally different part. And exactly. Like and and, and it's, what's fun is to sort of figure out um, when... You know, it, 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 eventually you learn like, oh, I can, I can figure it. You can hear the differences between the drummers, and you know that like, oh, post like seventy five, Mickey Hart is really into this like thump, 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 like floor tom uh-huh. riff, uh-huh. and like it's like it's like a little like it's almost like a, like a tag that a DJ would do. Hmm. But um, this is from the Veneta, Oregon, uh, August twenty seventh, nineteen seventy two concert, which many 
fans, including me, think is the best. Ever? Yeah. Um, I'd put it maybe in the top five, actually. It's, it's like, it's the sort of thing where I change my mind to like, <laughs> depending on my mood that day, but it's, um, this is just like a great show. They play a lot of really popular songs. Is this still China Cat Sunflower? This is the same, yeah, this is China Cat Sunflower again. And so this is one drummer, just Bill. And it's, it's, it sounds like a, almost a totally different song. It's like, uh, it's funkier, it's, it's yeah. more, well, it's almost, more room to breathe. Kind now of. it sounds almost like a, uh, like a much sunnier can song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See that. So um, I, there's a big, a big sort of debate that in, in like the dead fan community, um, which is like a pretty, as far as I'm concerned, like at, in places of extremely toxic fandom that <laughs> sort of sets the standard for other toxic fandoms. Um, you know, there's basically the the big kind of question is, are you a two drums guy or are you a one drums guy or are those the defining eras? Yeah, those are, so basically between, I think it's like 71 and 70, parts of 74, Mickey Hart was addicted to heroin and then his father embezzled like $70,000 from the band. Mm. And so they were were kind of like, hey, you're going to need to take a break for a while, man. (laughs) And also, if we could like get that $70,000 back, that'd be great. (laughs) It's like, get clean, buddy. We'll see you soon. (laughs) See you soon. Um, And so basically for a couple years, you have... Of like their the Dead's peak years, you know they're they have, they only have Bill Kreisman on drums, and so that means that they can change tempos quicker. They can uh, he can they they can start and stop, you know, like you were saying earlier. Like yes. they, they again a key, a key thing to do as starting a band. and stopping. Yeah. yeah, that is those are songs usually, yeah. <laughs> not always. Yeah, yeah. The in the book Bill kind of has a complicated relationship with Mickey, his his co drummer in that uh. He, he's he's the original drummer. He brings Mickey in. He says himself that like Mickey has shit to teach him, like that <laughs> yeah. he you know he's got fundamentals, but like he he kind of needs to cross. I think he puts it as like crossing the bridge between like the drummer he is and the drummer yeah. he could be. Sure. And so like Mickey's both like kind of a, a drummer daddy in that way, but then he yeah. I think he has ends up feeling like a little competitive with him the times when he tell you know the band is like dude you need to not do heroin that makes you bad at drumming like you need to leave and then like him coming back ended up being like kind of an issue but then at the end of the day he's also like we have such a good time drumming together like they would pick for shows like they would just pick like a theme like we're going to Mars and like drum like that like <laughs> yeah. they would just do these like they have these like weird trippy improvisational drumming experiences so I feel like they're both in inextricably linked in this like uh, dramatic drumming drumming dance of the dead <laughs> this is yeah. this is, uh, you know paired souls of drumming yeah yeah both rese- like resentful but can't can't live with him can't live without him right and so and this is definitely in the book a little bit. It's also in like the the documentary Long Strange Trip, which I recommend watching. It's uh, is that the one that um, does is that did Bill's son make Bill's, that? Bill's yes. uh, son Justin so Grossman made it. Yeah, Bill has a son, his second kid. Uh, which by the way, Bill had a kid like basically as soon as he went into the Grateful Dead. Sure, he was like yeah. nineteen years old. I think he was younger than that. I think he was like seventeen. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of fucked. Like he he like gets as a sort of fake marriage that he lies about his age, has a daughter. Uh, kind of lets this mini family just drop out of his life, mm. has a second wife, has this kid, 
seems to have a better relationship with his with his son Justin, well, who at, eventually at makes enough, a documentary. About at least him. enough that yeah, the, the uh, second kid engages in a film project about his dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's well, right. I mean, it's it's actually it's like a reasonably critical. Uh, documentary for something that is yeah like made by the son of the drummer yeah um, I mean it's still obviously to an extent um, like propaganda for the band sure but they d- it doesn't really hold back when it comes to criticizing them for basically their biggest flaw which is that in their desire not to be cops they never figured out how to how to even be mods um, <laughs> uh-huh. and they it, and the, the big problem they have is is basically when you make your fandom like as welcoming and it's like yeah come on in you end up with stuff like the Hell's Angels right yes. and like Ann Coulter, who's a big Dead fan, mm. and has a special stereo just for listening to the Dead. That's oh lame. That's, Shut up, Ann that Coulter. Sucks. Fucking sucks. Like these are I I, I <laughs> do not want to associate with the, these people. But uh, like among yeah. the most irritating pe- type of person that I could imagine is a hardcore audiophile. Uh, well, a conservative Deadhead audiophile. Like, yeah. Yuck. <laughs> Yuck. Yeah. yeah. We were just talking about this, the idea of kind of like self-policing your scene with um, our Steve Albini episode because he was asked that by a, a female journalist who was mm-hmm. just like talking to him about like what happens when you make music about toxic ma- masculinity and you might have tox- toxic masculine fans. And he basically, like he was just talking about how like, I think because his audience is a little more curated this self-policing happens and no one is allowed to be in too much of an asshole. Not the case with the Grateful Dead where no. people are just like beating. They're kind of like proto uh, Travis Scott fans. Travis Scott <laughs> loves when his fans like get fuck up fights. security, get yeah. in fights, break yeah. down barriers, ruin you know security plans for shows. This is all from his Netflix documentary, which I highly recommend people watch if they oh, want to cool. their brain to feel like it's been like cracked open and like poured into a soda can or something. Yes. But the Grateful Dead fans are like kind of the same way where it's like everyone wants a piece and there's no mod there's no uh uh kind of curation of like who gets to be a yeah. good, like who's a good fan? Yeah, and Inter- it results in chaos, oftentimes chaos. Yeah, they're going for anarchy with no heed to security or yeah. safety. safety. Yeah, which yeah. and he's I mean Bill himself says in the book like you know I I love it when you know we're renegades too so like we love it when fans are renegades but uh, within reason guys come on <laughs> yeah and he's like he's talking about a show that they had in the nineties yeah where there there were like it was basically like the preview for Woodstock ninety nine of like gates being knocked over and. Yeah, uh, just just a bad just bad vibes. Bad yeah. vibes. Bad vibes. And then they also they they have a in the book like um they they talk about Altamont, which is the <laughs> what was that what was that the bad vibes Woodstock ninety nine stage? I know that this is a, a Woodstock oh, ninety nine East, East, yeah. East stage was, was bad. bad West was fun. Yeah, West so was, was the, like all was, the dancing. Altamont is if you just had the East stage, <laughs> right? And yeah. so and they get into basically if like you don't know like the the the, the nutshell version of the history is uh. It was meant to be the West Coast Woodstock. The Rolling Stones were going to throw it. They, they asked the Grateful Dead, hey, can you help us organize this? So the Stones think the dead are going to, you know, because they're the locals, they're going to get everything, put everything together. The dead think that because the Stones are the headliners and the, a much richer, far more successful band, that mm-hmm. they're, you know, this is their show and the dead are just meant to, like, give them their contacts, basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up with a just a big a big shitty show in a, at a racetrack where uh, a bunch of Hell's Angels show up to do to, and are sort of like asked to do security and uh, they committed a potentially race-related murder and uh, I think several people end up dying in Altamont. It's it's a, it's bad vibes. Yeah, it's, not a good scene. And so yeah. it's like the sort of thing where the dead aren't, like they didn't, they weren't like egging any of this on. Like most, like they- But they weren't saying no. They- 
basically just didn't, they just sort of like had bystander syndrome or whatever it's called where you just freeze. And Kitty, like he, he just, Kitty Genovese, they, yeah, Kitty yeah, Genovese like, the, like the Bill, Bill Kreutzmann talks about how he was like sitting and like watching the Stones play and seeing people in the crowd like being hit with like pool cues by Hell's Angels <laughs> God. and being like, I don't know what the fuck to do, man. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't, they end up not playing. And that, yeah. The Bill says in the book, he's like, you know, listen, like blame is a funny thing. Like either it's everyone's fault or it's no one's fault, which is true in this case. I mean, everyone talks about Altamont as like the death of the 60s because mm-hmm. it was this violent, you know, it was the result of like when everyone is free, it lets uh, bad people be free too. And then it results in people getting hurt. Yeah. Uh, but Bill just being like, I don't know, man. Like, uh, it, it made me feel weird. So, like, I, I don't know. Like, we, we were buds with the Hells Angels. I don't really know what happened. Yeah. And it's- like, both taking responsibility, but also, like, kind of not. saying Blaming Mick Jagger, saying that he blew up their spot by announcing the free concert way in advance, which is not how the dead did it. Like, they would do these huge free concerts, but they would announce it, like, I don't know, a half an hour before, before. yeah, Yeah. (laughs) pre-Twitter, which is just like, I don't know, I guess you're on the street and you hear another hippie say, hey, the Grateful Dead are playing playing for free. They basically did the Beatles on the roof before the Beatles did it. Yeah. But they're in like their whole sort of like word of mouth marketing strategy was just, oh, if we start playing, like we're going to be playing for four hours. So, you know, the first yeah, hour is basically just whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's not like you were going to like miss it if you were a little late. They play. Yeah. The, I don't know if we'd said this yet, but the Grateful Dead are known for playing two full sets, two full sets. Uh, so that's a lot. That's a lot of music, man. Yeah. There's a lot of space. The, to fill. Um, the Bickershaw Festival, which is one of their, I might play something from that now. Sure. Um, which is their their best show. I'm just going to call them all the best show. Yeah. Um, so this was like a concert they did in 72 uh, as part of Europe 72, which is this legendary tour they did where they brought all of their friends and family along, mm-hmm. many of whom became roadies. And and so as part of like the Grateful Dead extended universe, you end up having to learn about guys named Ramrod. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> yeah. You, and you ask yourself, like, how, why are they friends with these guys? And it's like they were friends with everyone. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't they curate. Did, they were because they just didn't say no. They, they just didn't. No yeah. one. Yeah. Hey, they can were, I come with you? Imp- yeah. I mean, the thing about improv, improv. Yeah. <laughs> there at one point. Wait, I need to find this. The Im- improvisation was both our aesthetic and our ideal. When it comes to improvisation, you're not going to be like he can't come. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like we're oh no we're all we're all going here, but like you got you guys need to say no 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 yes and man yes. Yeah. Yes, and we're all going to, to Europe. Europe. So they, they uh, <laughs> created like a traveling caravan. Yeah. Complete with like Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters. Like, oh, bring, wonderful. Imagine yeah. bringing these people to Europe. Like, that's insane. Yeah, uh, they're literally a carnival. There were no, there were no yeah. dad, no mom. Well, I was about to say no moms and no dads. There were, fe- there were women acting like moms, <laughs> but there were certainly no dads on this, uh, on this caravan. They're all mommies, no daddies. Tour, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They, um, overall, I would say that the, yeah, like other than the having terrible fan control, the other sort of thing that the dead are shit at is, uh, being nice to ladies. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they're, I mean, like, they're not like horrible, but they're just, they're, they're just, they just have that chauvinistic 60s rock band crap, which is annoying. And yeah. well, I mean, you already brought up the, the classic and intro, uh, trope of a woman who just completely who he had a kid with who just like slides out of the picture and is just not mentioned again yeah yeah no and there's i mean he's he's 
he's been married five times, okay. which is probably on a, a close to a record for our, our uh, podcast subjects. But he's not, I mean, it's, it's both a thing where it's like the sixties, like everyone's vibing and like, there's this sweet little chick here, man. And like, I don't know, we just got into it. But then he just doesn't really talk about, I'm like, you're marrying people. Do you value monogamy? It's okay. If you don't yeah, just yeah. don't get married. Yeah, and he, do you and just want someone to make you food? You can hire someone to do that. It's unclear. Also, like if, if his like uh, <laughs> marriages were like um, open or not? But oh he, yeah, who's yeah who's who's making these decisions? Yeah, he's there's poly, he also kind poly of assholes. talks about some like it talks about like Donna Jean Godshow, who's the uh, was the female member of the band from seventy two to seventy nine. Uh, one of the she was a singer, and her husband uh, Keith was their one of their piano players. Mm-hmm. By the way, they are the real Spinal Tap. All of their piano players except um, Bruce Hornsby. Or dead. Oh god. Or died like while like before Jerry, like before the end of the band. Yeah, they had <laughs> they had a keyboard problem where they needed to keep keep replacing them. But anyway, he there's this bit where he just sort of mentions sort of like um kind of like he sort of when he puts down her singing ability, which like yes, she has kind of like a rough sort of Janis Joplin y voice, mm-hmm. but like the, no one else in this band can sing either. Like Yes. They, the only time they ever really had like good vocals was on American Beauty and that was because they had Crosby, Stills and Nash recording next to them <laughs> teach them how to do harmonies there's like, there's, like, there's like clips of it the documentary of them like you're like no you gotta match the A you gotta match the A um, anyway this is from the Bickershaw Festival Wigan, England on May 7th uh, 1972 and so yeah May 7th 1972 that would be uh, Bill's birthday or one of his birthdays And the song is called Playing in the Band, which is what they're saying now. So the the big thing that Mickey Hart teaches uh, Billy is um, you don't have to play in (laughs) 4-4. And um, also he teaches him rudiment... Excuse me. He he teaches him uh, rudimentary drumming, which is... Marching band drumming. Oh, so just like ha- like snare yeah, patterns, just different snare like patterns, like boppity 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 bop, boppity bippity boppity bop, and then you mix them together and then yeah. you make songs. And so that's like huge for Bill Kreisman and his like development as a drummer. And then it's almost like he kind of outgrows Mickey because Mickey didn't begin as a drum kit player. Mm-hmm. And so on some of the was, early, he, was he like a marching band player? For some of the early stu- early albums, he's almost like the Violent Femmes drummer, where he's got like a snare and he's got the the tom or like a, b- a bass drum on its side, basically. And then he's got like a bunch of other like cymbals and things to play with. But there's no he didn't start playing kick drum, I think, until a few years into the band or something like that. But anyway, so this is sort of a more this show is kind of has like a more like rocky hard rock kind of feel. <laughs> This. Yeah, I mean, this is so. This is um, uh, this song is by Bob Weir, and it's from his album that came out in 1972 called Ace, where seven of the eight songs on it ended up being standards. Like, this is actually their most played in concert um, original, mm-hmm. and it never appeared on a Grateful Dead album. Ah, ah. It was he made a solo album, and then the other guys of the band just kept on showing up and being like, "Hey, do you need a bass player?" And, like, <laughs> so and it just classic. ended up being a. Stealth, Grateful Dead, full, album. Be- full band album, yeah. That's just like 
you know, in Guns N' Roses of uh, Duff trying desperately not to be in like a, a post Guns N' Roses band with Slash, but then it's just like, oh, we can't, we, we just sound so good together. We can't not play together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Grateful Dead, they, there's a strong, a strong vibe. They, they were a vibes band. They were, vi- they were vibes first. They were, they were plur before that was a thing. That is true. And that, and <laughs> but with plur before the, uh, the R got added to it. <laughs> More of a plud. Peace, yeah, peace love, plug. unity, and, and disrespect. Yeah, yeah. So now we're in the jammy part. Um, so one of the things that I kind of, as I've gotten older, that I've like begun to appreciate about music is is that you need to have music that you can ignore. Yes. Sure. And do other things, too. Yep. Uh, which and, is why I've gotten more and more increasingly into EDM as I've same. moved into my late <laughs> 20s and early 30s. Yeah. Like, um... This is a, a, a great band for doing chores. They're kind of surprisingly good for the gym if you stick to the up-tempo songs. And yeah, that's why I need a guide to put. Yeah, I need, hiking maybe. I need somebody to put together like the fifteen like hardest Grateful Dead songs for me, uh, so I can I can get into. I mean, them. I can get you some. I got the hookup right here, man. Yeah, give me the hardest fucking Grateful Dead song that you can think of. Uh, the music you can ignore quality that someone once tweeted me is a uh, energizing. Oh, energizing. Energi- energizing and focusing, <laughs> which is how, why would I think of uh, of uh, Dead Mouse and Skrillex? Yeah, sure. All right, so what is it? What is your offer for the hardest uh, so Grateful Dead song? From the same, I knew you were going to ask this. This is from the I same knew, show, and it's, it. it's called um, uh, Greatest Story Ever Told. And um, I'm playing this version because you get to hear Phil Lesh fuck up the intro. This is like a, uh, you know, just another Bob Weir song. And so, like, the basically the reason they let Bob Weir sing all of these songs is because Jerry just wants to, sh- to shred sometimes. Uh-huh. And you need to have somebody, another yeah, you guy. Can't, it's hard to do both at once. <laughs> yeah. And so he wants like, to go wail on that wah pedal. Yeah. And so there's, there's harder versions of the song out there. This is just in the same playlist, so... Um, so the, the, I don't know what the lyrics are. Should have well, I guess Bible I do. I do space. love. I do love that wah wah pedal. Yeah, it it slaps. <laughs> it's, it's just good psychedelic guitar. Um, sorry, I think I just took just completely <laughs> off course. That's fine. That's that's that's, that's the, the trail dead, of dead. That's the dead spirit. The trail of dead. Trail of dead. I have seen them live. They were very good. <laughs> They, they um, so broke their instruments at a one o'clock in the afternoon Lollapalooza day one set. Okay. They they did what? Those instruments? They smashed two guitars. <laughs> nice. I mean, that's a nice way to to make a statement about you know a, a one p.m. festival slot. You got to do. You got to do, do something to make it exciting. Otherwise, you're just you're just hot. Well, they 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 brought a smile to the face of a 15 year old boy in, in Chicago See? <laughs> rock. one one action you know butterfly effect Ashton Kutcher like one action can change yeah. change the world, change the world yeah. one smash guitar in Chicago can cause a, a tsunami in, uh, in Sri Lanka <laughs> anyway just just to just to check in with Bill yeah. so like we've we're, you know we've moved through the 60s into the 70s the Grateful Dead are just getting more and more successful surely by just playing a shit ton 
and just get like, I don't know, just human affinity. Like literally just they are more popular because they are more popular. Yeah. It's not necessarily that they're like better. It's just that they are just more. Yes. Does that make sense in in an analog world? Well, they're getting in front of a lot of different people. Yeah. And everyone's digging it. And yeah, by the by the opportunity of doing this a lot in front of people and then continuing to do it a lot, you can be like, oh, I like that thing I saw that one time and now I can go see it again immediately. Yeah, or I could go see it a bunch, a, a lot, at like every time they play, for example. Yeah. Um, they, I just want to, and you know, Bill's on his second second wife, uh, second kid. He, at, at one point, they, they do get divorced, I think somewhere in the mid-70s, although it's hard to keep track. <laughs> Uh, I just, I just want to. Sh- he bounces around a lot in terms of his chronology. He does. It's, it's very much a, a memoir written by somebody who has been doing drugs who for has done a lot of acid, pretty yeah. much his entire adult life. Yes. <laughs> uh, I just he had some good kind of like individual stories or just like weird things that he said. He was talking about auditioning a keyboard player when they one of their one of their keyboard players got sick. Uh, and they found a guy who was like kind of good, but a Scientologist. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> and he goes, he says, Scientology can browbeat you, giving you the feeling that you're just not good enough, so you need to be audited. If God really is an outer space man, then so be it. But auditing just sounded like punishment to me. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, that's the most reasonable thing I think I've ever heard about Scientology. Yeah. Like it's fu- if God is an you know if God is Zenu. Okay, but just like, why are you being so mean to people? Why are you <laughs> yeah. giving them this expensive, useless therapy and then holding it against someone? Well, it's because their body yeah. is polluted with thetans, and yeah. you need to get the thetans out to yeah. make them a better person. You're actually trying to help them. Of, of course. I'm sorry, Chris, I forgot. I forgot about the thetans. Yes. Molly, I forgot that Molly, I am full of thetans. We have to label you a suppressive person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I think I'm not remotely clear. I think we're, I haven't gone clear, oh and I probably God. never will. Um, I, I just wanted to share that because I love that. Um, I mean, like to be clear, the space the space shit in Scientology that's the good stuff. It is. Yes. Like I was thinking the other day, I was like, you know, if it wasn't for all of the, like the, the the racism and homophobia and transphobia and all the other crap the Mormons do, like a religion where you get your own planet when you die. Yeah, that's awesome. a vibe. <laughs> no, that's a evo- it's evocative. A religion that just makes but up then, its own second but then Bible. You don't uh, don't uh, you don't have to do anything to get it. You just get it. You just get it. You just get yeah. A planet. If you're a reasonably good person, you don't have to unburden yourself to some rando and then have them tape it and then threaten you when you try to leave. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, the first yeah the first half is great. You had me in the first half. Yeah. Uh, his um. He had a great, well, I was going to say it's a great story. It's ac- it's actually kind of unethical. Uh, <laughs> like, a, like, a lot of the, like a lot of his Grateful Dead stories. Um, they are shooting a TV special oh, at the Playboy yes. Mansion. Okay. And yeah, yeah. he does not say this, who did this. this and he's like not sure setup. who did this. But somebody dosed the, like, the catering, like the water, basically, for this entire shoot. So that not only were the band starting to like vibe uh, on acid, but the cameramen who were supposed to be shooting the special started saying things like, uh, is this in focus? No, you're, you're not in focus. Uh, cameras are weird, man. <laughs> and then Hugh Hefner, they, uh, Bill alleges that they dosed Hugh Hefner with acid and that he tried to thank them for appearing on the show but could not get words out. Oh. And then he says... Uh, um, <laughs> He says, I don't, I don't condone dosing people, uh, but certain things were just woven into our DNA. Uh, uh, yeah. I think his idea is like psychedelics are not like Bad. coercive. Yeah. It's not like you're roofing someone, but it's still a little like, 
Oh god! I mean, I don't Peter, know. Of all Peter people to roofie, uh, Hugh Hefner. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the one of the people who deserves it the most. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, no love lost. There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe, who knows? Maybe, maybe he it opened his mind a little bit. IDK. Um, he also talks about the idea of like the Grateful Dead as a cult. Uh, and I just really liked the way he put this like thing because, you know, people obviously Jerry is such a beloved and sort of worshipful figure. But he says he's like the, the Grateful Dead are not a cult. We weren't gods. Uh, we wanted the music to take us to a place of transcendence and elegance uh, because we are all the same and we're all just a bunch of atoms. <laughs> atoms, not not atoms, not atoms. <laughs> we are all named Adam. I don't know. I, I like that. Yeah. Transcendence yeah. and elegance. I mean, that's the peace, love, unity. Yeah, yeah. Not, and the respect was not evident yeah. when they dosed the Playboy Mansion. No, there was no respect there. <laughs> that was not the, respectful. The, that's basically what MK Ultra did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, it's exactly what MK Ultra did. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, do you want to hear what many people consider the, to be their best show ever? Sure. I want to hear the the best best show. So there. So he uh, Bill talks about this in the book, but they have a, a habit of. At their all of their their most famous gigs, like they played Woodstock and completely bombed at three o'clock in the morning and refused to to this day to let any of their material from that show be be like sold commercially or or and they but it exists out there right it's somewhere but like they it, it's 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 funny that of all of the shows that they were like They're, actually you know this is the one that you can't listen to <laughs> it would be they also Woodstock. didn't they didn't sign off on the uh, footage video footage to be no. released either. Uh, which is, yeah, it is funny. Awesome, a lot of money. But um, anyway, so this is, um, so. but the point I was trying to make is that they, so they, they suck at the big shows and then they're incredible at these weird, random, small arenas basically in the late 70s and through the 80s. Like yes. that's sort of like their, their live peak. Um, so here's Brown Eyed Women from Barton Hall at Cornell University right. in Ithaca, New York. May 8th, 77. So by this point, Mickey's back in the band. We got the two drums. I think I'm a two drum person. I think I decided. Yeah, it gives them a lot more of a lot more oomph, kind of. Yeah. Um, and so this 77 is sort of like considered by a lot of people to be their, their absolute peak. And um, the Pitchfork review of the of this show, excuse me, this album, is that uh, basically their, their, their producer at the time made the drummers play more with each other and to play kind of tighter. Mm-hmm. And so the album is kind of iffy, but the tour after it, uh-huh. you have like probably their most accessible uh, iteration. You know, they're, tr- they're still doing weird trippy jamming stuff. They do a lot of that in this show, but they're becoming a little bit more of like a straightforward we're a rock band. Well, I, I honestly can get into this a little better just because it's a little bit more polished and uh, sounds a little bit more uh, with it, rehearsed, yeah. practiced. Yeah. And who'd have thought a gym at Cornell would have incredible acoustics like Yeah, this, this sounds great. So yeah, this that is, is kind of amazing. So this What's w- all those mats yeah. laying around? <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, was recorded by a woman named Betty Cantor Jackson, who is their longtime sound engineer, and um, 
definitely wanted to mention her because she's not really mentioned in Bill's book, and she's sort of Bill. Sorry, (laughs) she's the unsung hero of the Grateful Dead. Um, She was so she basically this isn't from the Nick Palmgarten New Yorker article that you can find on your computer. We will we will link it in the show notes. You know, she was a basically like a teenage girl, really good at math and science. You know, go STEM, and she just starts hanging out with the dead and taking acid and like starts dating this guy Rex Jackson. (laughs) <laughs> who's like one of their another good early man early manager like or early manager slash roadie guy. tour guy Just like one of their guys basically the dead would try to pay their friends to yeah do anything An- another great uh dead name rex jackson rex jackson yeah, yeah. and so and then I, mean, I can't remember if he was an, also an audio engineer or if the guy that she dated after she divorced rex jackson or he died or, it's it's chaotic um anyway the point is that she basically was an audio engineer who would record their stuff live to tape during the show. Mm-hmm. And, and her recordings are, like, this sounds, like, professionally produced, and this is just her, like, she is just doing this, like, as she, you know, like, off the top of her head yeah. as she's going along. And she did this for hundreds of shows, and she never saw really any money from it. Yeah, even though these tapes have now been dispersed infinitely. Yeah, they a lot of the the best sort of dead tapes out there come from her storage locker that she like couldn't afford payments on and it got like sold in like a storage wars auction oh my god not like literally but like yeah and, so, and then and then everything just got found in there and, yeah and so and, like this one like retired school teacher apparently is like I don't know if he's still sitting on the stash of tapes but he has like basically a hundred thousand dollars worth of dead tapes that yeah. he's trying to sell for a million yeah uh. Maybe and, Martin Shkreli's buying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's still in prison, right? Yes, Maybe, I think yeah. so. Maybe a GoFundMe or something. Yeah. But anyway, so this is like their, probably their grooviest. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, I, I, I can get into that. Yeah. I'll give you what I think is my favorite song by them. So this is Scarlet Begonias from the same show. And so. Scar- I, I come to Scarlet Begonias from Sublime, Sublime. of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I also like that was the thing that kind of kept me away from the dead for a while. I was like, oh God, like <laughs> Yeah, this is this is that. <laughs> you know, and like I I loved Sublime, you know, at the uh, you know, when I was like a, a teenager and shit. And yeah. I still kind of at the Sublime I still kind of dig some of the some Sublime songs. Yeah, I mean but honestly, not the <laughs> Honestly, I think that was the other thing is that like I always thought Grateful Dead was, you know, uh enjoyed and appreciated by like the the corniest people the, the, yeah. the, uh that I knew. And it really took um Unfortunately, not not even just you, Ben, but uh, the two guys I know who run the tape label in Chicago, uh, being huge fucking deadheads who are also incredible noise like psych noise musicians, mm-hmm. uh, running an incredible tape label to be like, oh, if they appreciate the dead, then there must be something here. Yeah, I mean they're they're kind of getting like a little bit of like a, a hipster revival. Like they a few years ago there was a tribute album for the Red Hot organization mm-hmm. that was produced by the one. One of the tw- one set of the National Twins, and it's just it's called Day of the Dead, and it's like three discs of Dead covers, and it's by like unknown Mortal Orchestra, oh, like yeah. War on right. Drugs, the National themselves, Wilco featuring Bob Weir, I think is on there, it's, and it's like um, TV on the radio. It's, it's good. I do appreciate that gooey bass tone. I was gonna say, as I wanted to. Your, your your bassist opinion on this. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, I, I've enjoyed all the Phil Esh parts that we've heard so far. I mean, he really is a... So he his deal was that he didn't know how to 
play bass before he joined the band. Sounds he, like he it. He was like a composer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, no, I mean, that's, he, a, that's a neg. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's, he has all that the kind of ways that like I look. I didn't have any formal bass training, but it was like kind of how I like listened to music and was just like, yeah. Then just do like yeah, like these uh, boom boom bam boom boom boom. And so his thing was that he was a composer, like like a classically trained composer, and. So he had all of the theory. He just mm-hmm. needed like a couple of days to kind of figure out where his fingers had to go. Yeah. But he has like he has a very distinct style of like he tries to repeat as little as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, something that you'll he'll do like a trick in one song and you'll hear it in a different song the next night. Yeah. Um, he likes playing high. He likes doing the boo, which is yeah. the I would say probably the most attention-seeking behavior a bassist can do, other than like slapping and popping. Yeah, and no, I, I love a good slide. <laughs> so yeah, so this is this is uh, this just rules. I, I like this better than this. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot less hard-edged, and um, sometimes it's sort of less adventurous. Like uh, like the we haven't really been getting like way into like the, the jams because like they're really long. Yeah, this is. This podcast is yeah. we're we're jamming, but it's not a jam of a podcast. I'm sure there's got to be podcasts that are like six hours long. <laughs> the other thing is that like I don't even really like jam bands. Like just, uh, despite you coming on for uh, fish for fish, yeah. I mean like and, then, uh, and now this. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, well, fish was just just because it's an interest. I thought it's it's an interesting story. It is an interesting story. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, like I was like a punk kid. I I was supposed to hate this shit. <laughs> And it's like, you just find yourself one day and you're like, I've been listening to Scarlet Begonias every day for three months. <laughs> Spotify has taken note. No going back. Yeah. Uh, so what else goes on in, uh, in uh, oh, yeah, we got Bill's life? So Bill Bill gets divorced, marries his third wife, Shelly. Uh, I, I really enjoyed his story that he shared of when they were sort of first getting together and she was staying over and they were hanging out. And then she comes up to him and was like, uh, the, the eye drop is your the eye drops in your dob kit expired? I put that shit in my eye and it really burned. And he went, That's not old eye drops, that is new acid. Oh god. So she squirted liquid LSD into yeah. her eyeball. So he calls he he calls Ken Kesey and says, uh, Ken, my girlfriend just put LSD in her right eye. And Ken, without missing a beat, goes, right on, Bill. Put it in your left eye and have a good time. <laughs> a lot of uh, inadvertent, unconsensual uh, drug use here. That, yeah. That's the thing that the, the 60s does really seem like people really needed to label their shit. Yes. Like, it, I just imagine everything was very ambient and there were no, you know, you know, the like the trope of like, ah, oh, my roommate drank all my milk. I feel like that was like the yeah, 60s but except, and 70s. Oh, that wasn't milk. That was acid. That was, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have heard a story like that of someone who, who drank from like a vodka bottle and, and like their friend like slaps it out of their hand and is like, you just drank like undiluted LSD. Oh god! Oh my god! <laughs> like in good time. Yeah, this is like a friend of a friend story. So you know, maybe this didn't even happen. But right. like imagining drink, someone drinking yeah, that a much good, ac- a good glug of thousands of hits of acid and then being high for days. Oh, oh my Jesus. god! That'll be in your bones for life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so that that's his love life. Um, he you know he he acknowledges that as the seventies kind of move on, the late seventies, early eighties the excess, the uh, pressure of keeping a juggernaut business afloat as opposed to a bunch of guys experimenting and having fun, that that all 
increases uh, and is stressful. Also, the drugs have changed. She's still doing acid, but now there's cocaine. Cocaine is not. It, I was not good say, for drums. It's not his favorite. It's not his favorite drug. It was seemingly seemingly his favorite drug for a while, but yeah, he says it does not serve the music. Okay, yes. Uh, cocaine does not make you a better drummer, a more conscientious jammer and improviser. It simply makes you just want to do bumps in between your songs. Yes. Which uh, I guess the songs are long enough that he, it, you know, he might need to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't you know. take a little break between one and during a guitar solo or something. Yeah. In the in the the documentary, they talk they talk about how there's a. Uh, sort of war within the, the Grateful Dead camp um, between the Cokeheads and the Acidheads mm-hmm. during one of the tours. And like one of their roadies was hanging out backstage and saying, if you want to go past me, like you need to do, you need to do like a drop of acid right now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Kind of like gatekeep the and acid. It, and it was, but it was, it was, it wasn't like just to be like an asshole. It was like, because behind him was the stage and he didn't want anyone around the stage who was on Coke and right, yeah. bringing the bad vibes. He wanted everyone on stage to be on acid and bringing the good vibes. Right, okay. That is funny. And so, yeah, so drugs really, um, <laughs> I, I, hate, I hate to keep bringing, bringing up the movie um, and distracting from the book, but there's this recurring theme throughout it where um, Jerry Garcia especially, and then and also the, just like the band as a whole, like they're, they have like this whole kind of philosophy of fun mm-hmm. where fun is in the Grateful Dead universe is something that is very important. Mm-hmm. And it's probably because like um, Jerry Garcia sort of like experienced something like when he was younger that was like that basically traumatized him for life. You know, he, he saw his father drown on a fishing trip. Oh, oh God. God. And so that. what's interesting is that it's, it's, it's hiding in plain sight the whole time. The Grateful Dead mm-hmm. make a lot of music about like death and uh, just really heavy shit. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, <laughs> the, but he wants to imbue it with the spirit of fun. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so, like, their their whole idea is basically, yeah, is to f- be able to like not necessarily to hide from tragedy or or trauma and stuff, but to kind of to find a way to make it better. Like the mm-hmm. the, the the term "Grateful Dead," like before it was their name, they get it by flipping through a dictionary and uh-huh. they settle on it. And if you look it up, it, basically, it's a it's a type of like folk tale where a traveler finds either a dead body or he learns of someone who has like an unpaid, a dead person with an unpaid debt Mm -hmm. and you bury that person and then they become grateful dead. And then later on the good Samaritan is in like peril and is rewarded by the spirit of the grateful dead who saves him. Sure. Uh Okay, great. And so that's kind of what they are in a weird sense, like that they, they kind of want to, they want to be there for you. So like, I'm going to play a song, from that 72 Oregon concert. So like, it's called He's Gone. And it's it's sort of like- This is the prequel to She's Gone. I was gonna say, I just heard that in my head. Is, <laughs> oh, no, it's, yeah. And it's like, um, this is sort of like what, this is why they, I think that they were actually able to like build that audience. Um, so it's a little bit slower. And um, this is, you know, just sort of a song where- Yeah, right at the base. <laughs> You know, in the chorus is he's gone, he's he's never coming back, basically. And it's sort of a it's it's not really clear what they're referring to, but it's it's people generally tend to interpret it as being about death because the yeah. beauty of their lyrics is so much of them are uh, psychedelic nonsense that you can kind of insert your own meaning to make make Do they still have those know? staff writers for all of their run? Wait, what? The the, the Lyricists. Lyricist. They had yeah, so they had two. They had Robert Hunter, who was Jerry Garcia's guy and Bob Weir's guy until he had a f- 
basically, Bob, we Bob Weir doesn't like to learn lyrics. So he would just want to make shit up? Or yeah, or he would he would just switch the order that verses would go in and stuff. Like, just normal things that a jam band would do. Mm -hmm. Especially a jam band that has a huge repertoire of, like, surprisingly complicated lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but then, like, Robert Hunter was like, no, you should need to do the song, like, the same way every time. And so John Perry Barlow enters the mix. And his name is familiar if you've seen um, Hypernormalization. Okay. Because he's, like, the... He's meant... He's like the guy who gets his credit history hacked by like the bad hackers when he's trying to be like, <laughs> and so he actually I think gets a raw deal in that movie because he's like a portrayed as being a like this like techno utopian liberal, which isn't really true. He's actually this weird libertarian, um, and it's just it's just not it's and it's like basically his crime in in as far as Adam Curtis is concerned is. Um, he was optimistic about the internet <laughs> in the early 90s when everyone was. Yes. Sure. And so it's sort of, I feel like he gets a raw deal kind of in certain circles. Also because he's just, you know, like the second lyricist, you know. Uh, well, uh, that's a good plug for hypernormalization, which in many ways is is the, uh, the, the jam band track of uh, hyper-pessimistic YouTube documentaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it just, it jam it's jamming with stock footage yeah. of... Yeah, it's jamming, jamming with Bombing, all things. Jamming oh, with man. culture, jamming with uh, you know information, jamming with theory. Jamming with the, re the reason you should hate John Perry Barlow is that he was a bad lyricist. No, he he's got one good song, I think. But he um he was a Republican Party official when Dick Cheney won his first election in Wyoming. Ugh. And it's like he claims like that it was the biggest mistake of his life, and that he because he's he's a cattle rancher slash lyricist you know he's like this guy sounds like he has an interesting life yeah. he's a weird fucking guy <laughs> I wanna, uh, yeah, I would, he passed away recently um, I want to do uh, the John Perry Barlow uh, documentary or book after this yeah, yeah sure and so yeah he's a but like um, and so he basically he said that he thought Dick Cheney was going to be a libertarian and so it's like okay so you're you're just kind of a dummy you're not evil. you fucked up but yeah you, you fucked, fucked up John up. Perry Barlow uh, he, bet, uh, he bet on the wrong the wrong cow as you do yeah. Uh, so wither, wither, Bill. Wither, yeah. Bill. Well, I mean, Bill, Bill's getting into kind of darker territory. Yeah. Um, he's he's doing risky behavior. He he recounts a. This was kind of in the the more boom or the the happier times of doing basically doing a high speed race home from a gig like all through San Francisco and then up into the north like driving like 120 miles per hour in yeah. San Francisco like in the middle of the night um so like that that is his you know he's a speed racer of a certain kind sure he's he's uh he's driven uh <laughs> he i mean he he's still having a good time but i think the drugs are are making him upset he's the he caught he caught a drunk driving charge in New York City and has it completely like wiped under the the rug by a judge who's a fan of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> um, he's by, he's by, partying uh, with John Belushi, which is just uh, like... By, by presenting the judge the classic, come on. Device. Come on. Yeah. Am I... Am I good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've, you've heard the Grateful Dead, right? Yes. Am, am I good? I uh, gotta get to my job, which is a Grateful Dead gig. I, I, I think it's interesting the that there's more... The judge is wearing the deadhead shirt like under his robes. Yeah, he, he just like slowly lifts up the robes to yeah, reveal yeah. The, the skull. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like there's a slightly outsized number of pages devoted to how much Bill Kreutzman loved hanging out with John Belushi. There's a, there's a lot of... Like, a, it was a and, lot. And all of their stories basically boil down to um, 
He's a wild and He's crazy, a crazy guy. guy. Yes. He I feel like uh, drugs. John Belushi is such a dark energy of the 80s, and everybody who uh, touches him had their life like negatively impacted. He Bill re- talks about how John Belushi did a Joe Cocker impression on SNL. Yeah, with the little That hand. basically yeah. fucked up Joe Cocker forever. I didn't know about <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. Joe Cocker, he basically saw that impression and then toned down his whole stage vibe <laughs> because he was embarrassed by John Belushi's impression. I'm like, oh my, I'm horrified by that personally. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, John well, Belushi's very funny. He didn't know yet because uh, uh, it hadn't been the cultural institution that we know too, but his, yeah, that's kind of Joe Cocker, Cocker's fault for taking SNL uh, a ser- like something to be taken seriously. Yeah, yeah or, I guess you gotta uh, let it respected. roll off. You gotta, you gotta let it roll off your back, but you know, was it good then? Uh, my favorite, uh, John Belushi rock star 80s story it was John Belushi meeting the uh, of course is a, a Devo story uh, of uh, the Devo guys and the opposite of yeah John Belushi was great he loved to party we he got us a bunch of jobs is uh, Jared Cassell from Devo being like yeah John Belushi fucking sucks he took all my coke <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he took a lot of people's coke yeah, yes uh, once again the, the idea of owning and labeling drugs I don't think was very uh, very I, I normal just, for these I just people. love the idea uh, of the these spuds from Akron <laughs> coming into, uh, I mean that's what they would call themselves. Literally, what they call themselves, these spuds from Akron coming into New York to play big city SNL, and I'm sure and Jared Casale feeling like such a badass, getting like a, a a bag of coke and being like, hell yeah, we're rock stars now, playing on the TV. Oh look, there's John Belushi, and John Belushi just comes up, he's like, give me that. Walks off, (laughs) (laughs) just like a slight trail going behind him. I think the one other before we kind of talk about the '90s and the band's decline, because to me the story the the recounting in this book that feels the most like true to like describes Bill Kreutzmann as a person is when the Grateful Dead plays in Egypt. They play the Great Pyramid. And this is a, uh, because it is a sort of cultural exchange, they have to pay their way to go, which costs uh, half a million dollars. Oh, Jesus. Is that like including setting up the concert and everything? Yeah. Staging it, um, security, all of their squad, uh, roadies, all that shit. Mummy insurance. Mummy insurance, of course. You you can't shake the, if they play and they shake the mummies, then they have to uh, wrap up, (laughs) rewrap the mummies. You, it's the, you break it, you buy a clause for uh, the pyramids. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but it just sounded like such a, like Bill vibed so hard with this, like just going to Egypt and like the hotel was like, uh, don't go outside after, after nightfall. Like you have to stay in the hotel. And of course, if you tell the Grateful Dead to not do something, they will, they do, will it. do it. And they went out at night. They were like going to a nightclub in the middle of the desert, uh, with these like crazy drums. And Bill was just like vibing with these drums, riding on horses, like through the night with like sparks, camels and shit. sparks coming off of the horse's hooves because the, the rocks that they were riding over were, were causing friction. It just, I mean, it sounds amazing. Like I feel like at, is, at his best, Bill is kind of like just one with nature and sure. like beings in this way that I'm into. It's just when he treats human beings, like they don't like everyone is just on the same fun trip as him. When maybe that's not true, mm. that things get a little hairy. Is that yeah. concert taped? It is. I would, uh, I have never heard pyramid? it. So, yeah. Um, the look concert for Egypt. When is this? Like the mid-80s? concert <laughs> The concert for Egypt, Egypt, like it's a yeah, like like it's farm aid. Yeah, farm aid. (laughs) Concert for mummies. Concert for mummy aid. Uh, Aid. Can you can you find this? Um, Yeah, I got it right here. Oh, great! Pulled it up. Um, I've never actually listened to it. 
So this is this could be a hell yeah a huge flop. Who knows? <laughs> um, so let's do live from uh, Giza Sound and Light Theater, Cairo, Egypt. Um, this can't be it. <laughs> You don't think this is it? This doesn't sound like they're playing in the next to a pyramid. I don't know, man. What song is this? This is Fire on the Mountain from uh, September 16th, 1978. So usually Fire on the Mountain comes after Scarlet Begonias when they play them live and they play them into each other and it's sort of considered to be like the, that's when you want to peak, basically. <laughs> So for the show, like I think Bill Bill mentions that his hand is broken or something. Like his arm is he his broke his in hand in a, in a in a stateside horse accident. <laughs> he, I think he falls off a horse. Riding too many horses, dude. Fa- falls off a horse when he's on cocaine. Guys, if there's one takeaway from this episode, don't ride horses on coke. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. It's a terrible idea. He but he manages to learn how to drum one handed. Uh, a, a long tradition of uh, one handed arm uh, drummers. <laughs> One-handed Def Leppard. Def Leppard. There is a song on the original Nuggets uh, compilation called Multi uh, that is a long inspirational monologue uh, from the drummer from the Barbarians about how he lost his hand in a car accident and was feeling really down on himself uh, and then uh, learns to drum with one hand and that's what the song is about and then it breaks into this big traffic chorus that's like Multi, don't you back down? And that's his name. Oh, that sounds great. Well, that's that's yeah. adorable. Uh, We're good friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna lie. This this kind of sucks. <laughs> like, <that's laughs> this is kind of what I imagined. Yeah. Like 90 percent <laughs> of the Grateful Dead is like. Let's hear them do like a like truck and like a a hit. I have to play the hits really good. It's a little better. Um, yeah, one of the fun sort of things about this band is that you're allowed to um, listen to their shows and be like, oh, this is crap, and then talk about it with your friends online. <laughs> we'll agree <laughs> on or the not. Forms. There's um. I want this that, is, like, that is, I, I totally appreciate the benefit of having a band that has so much work that you can, even if you say that like 25% of their output is great, you know, you're talking about hundreds of hours of material. Yeah. And then you having the freedom to completely say like, no, they sucked ass during this show. Yeah. Not good at all. Not on at all. Every track from this show sucks. The night later though. Yeah. Great. Great. <laughs> lo- love it. Love every second, second of that. Yeah. And, and like being able to evaluate things on either on like that basic thing rather than the um you know i think that people recognize a kind of like frustrating a uh, binary of stand culture where you either simply must stand and everything is good and perfect yeah. yeah so um i was earlier i sort of talked about how they have kind of like a toxic fan base and i'd say that yeah like they're it reminds me kind of of star wars fans where you can be a star wars fan and basically hate two out of the nine core movies of the trilogy i'd say you could be a, st- a st- you could consider yourself a hardcore Star Wars fan and like two out of the nine yeah. core movies. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. like, um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, definitely. And so it's like, but there were like uh, fans who were willing to like write, be like, prequels, all bad, or like the yeah. sequel trilogy, all bad. 
great. And then, like, dead fans are the same way where they'll be like, 80s, shit. 71 to 74, great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and it's just sort of like, geez, like, <laughs> you can just not like it. You don't need to, like, yeah, yeah. absolutely write it off. Know. Yeah. So there are people who get way too into certain things about it online and everything. And generally, also, they tend to say misogynist shit about Donna when she was in the band. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, just like anything that it has a broad repertoire of things yeah. that allows people to get obsessed about people are going to form like weird. It also, yeah. And it's, it sort of reminds me actually of your, your coworker Felix's um, uh, MMA documentary where mm-hmm. it ends with, um, you know, it's a story of this outsider blood sport weird, you know, for weirdos by weirdos. And then it becomes UFC, you know, this big corporate juggernaut. Yeah. Juggernaut. Thing. And it's and the poignant thing at the end is, is, you know, he says in the narration, like uh, something like um, you may be like, Oh, that's just, someone else's thing, but um, nothing you love, this will happen to everything you love, nothing you love is safe from this, you're fucked too. Yeah. And and so it's just, when something becomes popular, it's all, at this point, like, it's, I don't see how it doesn't suffer, basically, from being massively popular, because you end up with the people in the scene who shouldn't be there, and bring in bad vibes, and, you know, disrespect people and stuff, and, yeah, it's just, it's just when you beget, when you become massively successful, you're fucked. And I guess yeah. like that, that segues sort of into the end of the, the book, more or less. Uh, yeah. One quick question. Yep. Who owns Grateful Dead at this point? Like the, the name, the property, merchandising rights. So I would say that the surviving members do. So, so the surviving members are... Um, oh, yes. Wait, he talked about the deal. that there, At one point, there was a basically a last man standing deal for the Grateful <laughs> they Dead. They had a tauntine. That's right. <laughs> they had a fucking tauntine. Uh, the last person standing yes. gets to keep the name. So like the last living member of Grateful Dead gets it all. And then they, they struck that. And now I think they have something more... That rocks. Less, less crazy. <laughs> yeah. should have kept the tauntine. That's an amazing way to do the band. That just tells you everything about yeah, the way yeah, yeah. Their, their minds. I mean, because that is a weird, like, path of least resistance way. We, as you said, very at the beginning, that that it, you know, Gar- Garcia was the musical leader, but they lacked a like uh, uh, logistics leader, a daddy, and yeah. simply simply saying like, look, whoever lives longest gets it all, gets to, gets the gold. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, know, that man. is like the the easy, the simplest way to yeah. to go about this thing. Yeah, I guess. And- when when Jerry died, they stopped going. When they did their reunion tours, they never went by Grateful Dead. Now they do like Dead and Friends or something. Or like now that. they're now they're Dead and Company, Dead and which Company. is their version with John Mayer, which um, mm-hmm. I've listened to, and it's not. It just feels like you're watching like a Grammy tribute to somebody Ooh. who just died. Um, <laughs> my stepmom went to a Dead and Company show on Halloween at MSG, at MSG and was shocked, shocked. I tell you, to learn that there were young people engaging in the use of narcotic drugs at this program. Specifically marijuana. Marijuana. Uh-huh. And even more scandalized that it came in the form of a bubblegum vape that then I believe spilled on her purse. <laughs> <laughs> she was very, very uh, uh, aggravated that this would be the the case in the scene at the Halloween Dead and Company show at MSG. I honestly, I, I truly, I can't believe that happened to her. Yes. It's shocking. It is shocking. Uh, uh, and and, more and more MSG will be hearing yes. from my people. Yes, <laughs> on her behalf. I can't believe they allowed such heathenry. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah. The class action lawsuit against the the company behind Dead and Company. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. The Dead and Company. The company. And company. <laughs> right. 
Um, so yeah, they, they go into the nineties and everyone's declining. Jerry's health is declining. He had been in a, a diabetic coma for a little bit in 1986, came out of it, had to relearn how to play guitar. Ooh. Uh, he was just like not paying, you know, he was on doing heroin and like not mm-hmm. paying attention to his health. Obviously, uh, Bill himself was like smoking opium for a while, uh, which was like not, not great. great. He said at, at one point, like he was drinking a couple bottles of wine a day. He was addicted to Xanax. Uh, like he, so, I'm surprised bottle. how old Xanax was. I know. Yes. Like I, I couldn't believe that you could be addicted to Xanax in the yeah. 80s either. But he, he was a he was a uh, a visionary. Yeah. Um. So they by 1995, he says 1995 is the worst year of his life because Jerry dies. His father dies. Uh, and then the ba- the band basically dies yeah. after they have this horrible tour uh, in the summer of '95, where fans are getting a fan got paralyzed oh, uh, from taking shelter in the ra- uh, from the rain after a show and having their the porch basically collapse on them. Uh, fans were struck by lightning, like just horrible, horrible stuff. I mean, it, and he was de- like he was super depressed. He's self medicating, so he basically. At a certain point, he had he finds the it within himself to like cut himself off. He's like, I need to go to rehab. Goes to rehab, gets clean. He, st- he still says he, at one point he's like, I still do Xanax if I need to sleep after an acid trip, but otherwise I don't abuse. <laughs> well, it. I love I'm that. Like, so, Bill, come on. The secondary thing is that he he got sober, but at, not acid, of course. That's yeah, just no, that's just well, like acid breathing. is the good. He's one of the good drugs. Yeah, well, and he he, yeah. he also advocates for legalizing marijuana at two different points in the book. Which does he have like, like like extended passages yeah. about it? Yeah, <laughs> just being like it's it's far past the time for uh, cannabis it's to be very legally, dead legally. Yes, <laughs> very much so. Um, does he advocate av- advocate for acid legalization? He doesn't, but I don't know. He gets he, mad when they uh, ban it in the. In like '67 or whenever they yes. they made it illegal, right? Um, um, so yeah. yeah, he's he's in this this dark time, which like the band is basically decimated when Jerry dies. He's a, he says he basically walks away from the band first. Like he doesn't want to be in the Grateful Dead if there's not. It would be like the Miles Davis uh, quintet without Miles, Miles Davis. Davis. Yeah, yeah. It would just be the quintet, uh, and that's awkward. Or I guess the quartet. Do we want to hear quartet. a little a little bit of the last Dead show ever? Sure, sure. Uh, content warning um it sucks and it's actually yeah. very sad to listen to because um so th- so one of the i think also one of the reasons why people really do not care for the grateful dead is that last five years Ooh. so yeah imagine your last five years of touring So you can listen, you can hear Bob Weir's part is like good. Yeah. Oof. Maybe I do have two songs. <laughs> God damn it. Nope, they're. This is real bad. This is. I haven't. Yeah. I hadn't heard this one yet. like they're in tune honestly and then and also one of their one of their most obnoxious qualities they would spend a lot of time tuning on stage they were very meticulous about it that's funny. that was and so it's makes a lot of like the, the bootlegs hard to listen to because you have to skip four minutes of, um, of tuning tuning and like banter but oh um, uh what, what was that what was that, that was tune? sugar magnolia from soldier field chicago on july 9th 1995 
And that was the last Grateful Dead show ever uh, with Jerry. Damn. And uh, yeah, I mean, they he really took a turn for the worse. Like, uh, he's sort of like the, if Kurt Cobain dying in 94 is like burnout, Jerry Garcia is sort of like the fade away. Mm. Yeah. And um, I mean, coming both out of suck. The, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, Bill describes it as like Jerry's life force is it diminishes. Yeah, and it it happens over the period of at least a decade, if not not longer. Yeah, and and it's like I mean I mean like I mentioned earlier, like he, he lost his father at a young age. You know, uh, keyboard players dying. Um, yeah, roadies and like other hangers on and friends. Jimi Hendrix dying. and Janis Joplin. Janis, yeah, his, his, also, yeah. I wasn't going to bring this up, but just to add to the parade of, of the dead is their um, their manager slash booker slash agent uh, Bill Graham died in a helicopter crash. Ugh. Uh, which I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I'm going to avoid getting into a helicopter. Oh, I thought you were going to say avo- avoid talking about this. I'm like, yeah, probably maybe probably. No, I'll, I'll Given the option, I, I, yeah, I think I'm gonna stay out of helicopters. I'm. I don't think I'm ever gonna be in a helicopter. I'm, and I'm good. okay with that. I'm, I'm good. I think I'm good. Where do I? Where am I going? That I need a helicopter to get there. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I think. Okay. Good. Let's let's agree. Maybe no helicopters. Yes. Yeah. Great. <laughs> um, so there's all this darkness, and Bill he goes to rehab. He he cleans himself up. He kind of stops playing music consistently he moves to Hawaii he had like a great time in Hawaii once and he's like I shall move here um he has an interlude where he marries a fourth woman uh who we I don't even think he names her yeah like this woman doesn't even get a name that, uh, that he says it was a mistake <laughs> increasingly becoming one of your worst uh, tropes of this is like a romantic interest who is not even deigned to have a name. But yeah. he turns it around. He's got he marries and divorces wife number four. Then he meets this organic farmer named Amy. Uh, falls in love and just it's. I mean, it sounds like it's it's cute. He's still with her. They're at, living at in the, Florida. They're living in Hawaii. In Ho- Hawaii, sorry. Uh, they they get married three different times: courthouse wedding party wedding and spiritual wedding complete with Hawaiian sorceress or okay. a, a Hawaiian enchantress okay. who blesses them. And at the end of the book, we know at the time when he kind of gets to wrap up his whole story, he says, through all the highs and all the lows, in the end, this book is really just a simple love story. It's a story of how Bill met Amy. Uh, and as long as you let your heart guide you, it will never lead you astray. It may have taken... 50 years and 30 years of uh, fucking around in a, in a legendary band. But yeah. That it just came to getting him to Hawaii. Just to, it all, you know, it all worked out for him. In the I end. mean, <laughs> he seems happy and she's happy. That that's cool. The, I uh, just two two people that he, uh, or I was going to say two people, two incidences that he shares in his past life is one that he sleeps with the woman who, uh, was the, uh, 19 year old involved in the profumo affair, the profumo affair. You heard of this? No. Uh, this happened in the '60s. It was a British minister like a, like of cabinet minister or something. Right? Uh, the sec. Whoa. How did this happen? <laughs> On the same day, did it do the exact same thing? Wait, this is so weird. The, they had so for uh, for <laughs> no, listeners. You're not, you're not putting this in the podcast. <laughs> I'm doing it because it happened to me. Don't put it in the podcast. <laughs> Earlier today. Uh, Molly and I sit across from each other on identical red chairs from, I believe, Crate and Barrel. 
And earlier today, I sat down on mine and it collapsed oh under me God. and scratched the floor. And I felt very embarrassed about it. And I ta- told it to Molly earlier. And just as Molly was finishing this story, oh no. the identical chair collapsed from under her. So these da- chairs were bought at the same time, sat on. A- they must have just like 10,000 sits. Chris, it's You're my definitely gra- getting your money back. It's my grandma. It's my grandma. My grandma died last week. A, pa- a bag of chips fell off a shelf of its own accord. An umbrella popped in uh, uh, inside of a tool cabinet. And now both these chairs. This is my grandma coming and visiting me. Anyway, I, you should keep it in here. Uh, it was, there are was you the, okay? Uh, oh, I'm fine. The, the secretary. Only thing damage our egos. The, and also maybe the floor, which got scratched on my side. I think I, I went down in a, in a gentle way. It was the secretary of state for war in a conservative British government who slept with a 19-year-old model and uh, had to resign. And then later. And Bill Kreutzmann slept with her got, too. You got sloppy I'm, seconds on that. Yeah. God damn it. I'm doing the rest of this podcast from the floor. Well, this is probably a sign that we should wrap it up. For this. Uh, I got to get to Iowa tomorrow. Um. Anyway, Bill Bill Kreutzmann, I don't know. He seems fine. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't seem like a like a malignant person. Like he, he's not like doesn't seem like he's like a sex pest or, uh, no. or you know abusive. He, he's just um kind of self centered and a bo- uh, like a, a kind of a boomer hedonist. Also, I mean, like he he was he went he's never he literally has never had a real job like. You know, he went from being like a. He was in that band when he was like a teenager. Mm. He has never had a real job. Yeah, it's all he knows. <laughs> yes, this orgy of drugs and never-ending jams and just touring all over the, the United States. You know, just that's his life. <laughs> I can't believe this chair collapsed. Both on the same day. Literally on the same day. Oh Jesus! I can confirm for the audience like this was you guys were talking about this like off mic before we started recording like this isn't a <laughs> this, yeah, isn't this is a not bit. a work I don't know how we could even make this a bit yeah oh, uh, well you know Ben do you have anything else that you want to add about Grateful Dead basically um uh, I would like first of all thanks guys for in, inviting me on and and giving every Grateful Dead fan exactly what they want which is a uh, captive audience to. <laughs> Listen to me go, no, 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 wait, wait for that part. No, 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 no wait for that part. <laughs> I don't think you did nearly do enough it. of that. Uh, but yes, I, I mean, thank you for taking us on a, uh, a, a, a meandering tour through the Grateful Dead, which I think is the best way that you could yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've never listened to any of their, you know, a, a fan's recommendations of, of this stuff. Um, but, you know, it's good music too. What was the term that you used earlier? Folk uh, energize? Uh, folk uh, energokissing. Energokissing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that was good, I kind of like the stuff that was bad. I, I really, really didn't bad. like. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> what? They've got <laughs> 20,000 tracks. 2,000 shows. Something like that. Of uh, varying audio quality. The, yeah. the next time I listen to The Grateful Dead will probably be on realistically on an airplane when I want to hear something, but like nothing. <laughs> and I, ho- I hope that's not insulting, but no, I think I could actually really vibe out in a, pl- on a plane to just some like gentle noodles from, I don't know, Cornell I 77. Mean, one of their, one of the great things about, I mean, so like my overall like pitch on them, I guess is that, um, you know, you don't have to like them, but, and you know, I, I'm not like a, I refer to myself as a deadhead, you know, here, but like, I'm not, you know, I, do, I, I don't say, see do you ID as no, a deadhead. No, not really. I mean, like I don't go to, dead and company shows like uh i like a lot of other stuff but like they're they are you know a new object of fascination and but basically i would say like if you can get beyond the like the shitty fans and 
all of the mm-hmm. shitty concerts they played and the the tacky dancing bears merch and um, all of the other sort of like annoying things about them that they can be a very enriching thing for you and you'll like them. Well, let's start out here. Uh, two, you know, a billion shows. This is, this is the kind of advice that I would need to get into it. Uh, the two shows that we shouted out on this episode as being classic dead shows are uh, Vanita, Oregon, uh, August 27, 72, and live at Cornell, May 8th, 1977. So if you just want to like pick out two live tracks and be like this, because that is the way to listen to the dead. Yeah. It's just like listen to two live sets. Those are two good recommendations uh, that we learned of tonight. So yeah. that if anything, you came away with a good way to uh, open the door to the dead. Yeah, and, and like um, Cornell and Vanita are on Spotify, a uh, bunch of uh, bigger shows on Spotify, a um, bunch of this other stuff. I mean, it, the other stuff I think is on the uh, archive, archive.org, and um, and all, all that stuff is free. Yeah. And I think some of it you can, you don't have to stream it, you can also download it and put it in your your iPod. We don't have those anymore. Uh, yeah, just burn, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, burn it to tape and walk it around in your uh, Walkman. All right. Let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming here. Thank, thank you. you much Any- for uh, uh, guiding us through the land of the dead. Anything to plug? Um, so I have a play. I don't know when it's going to go up. Um, I write plays. That's like my thing um, for people who don't know. And <laughs> I mean, why would you? Um, so it's called uh, I Am the Goose King. It's about conspiracy theories. If you, if you are interested in... QAnon, um, anthropologically, not necessarily uh, seriously, then <laughs> this is your show. Um, I don't know when it's What gonna... if I am seriously interested in QAnon? <laughs> I did a lot of, I read a lot of that stuff, man. And um, ooh, like even, even as research, it's just like, like it'll, you'll walk down the street and like look up and be like, hmm, that airplane's going kind of slow. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know if they fly over this part of the town. Uh, <laughs> if, if all goes according to plan, this would be for around the 19th. Of the show, um, so th- there's no um. Uh, so I am the Goose King. I don't actually have a debut date for it. It's it's gonna come out sometime this year. I'm still basically finalizing it. But if you want to see me do theater, other theater things, I perform in a show called The Fast and the Furious. It's every first Tuesday of the month at the Tank in Manhattan. Great. You can just search Tank the Tank NYC dot org, cool. and it's bas- basically it's like if you if you like uh, shit posting on the internet. Uh, about politics, this is the play version of that. It's a bunch of short, unrelated uh, scenes that people write in a week about a news event that happens that week. I perform in it. <coughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be turning. Uh, um, I perform in it about like um, about half the time, so maybe you'll see me there. And basically, it's it's like it's very cheap. It's usually runs about an hour. Um, you can buy beer there and drink it in the theater. It's fun. <laughs> These are all the kinds of things that I like to hear about live theater. And yes. it's like, it's, it's, it's about current events and like, you'll see some, you'll, you'll see some shows that you, you probably won't like. You'll see some shows that you'll never forget. I will never forget the, sh- the play I saw where a little girl prays for an angel to bring her Tide Pods <laughs> and then yeah. an angel shows up and gives her Tide Pods and then the little girl eats them and that was the entire play. <laughs> great. That's, That's what great. theater should be. So like, um, yeah, it's fun. It's a little like a, a, a being a dead fan is that some of it's incredibly forgettable and some of it is, is transcendent. Molly, anything to plug? Probably, who knows where we'll be right now. Who knows? Who can, who can even say? Who can say? I think we might be in Vegas when this comes out. Cool. 
Uh, so uh, plug Las Vegas. Come to this Las Vegas show. Uh, unless it's already happened, then you missed out because it's going to be a, probably a real weird one. So I have nothing to plug except uh, my own sanity as I'm trying to get out of Escape from New York and get to, to uh, Iowa once again. So with that, I'm going to wrap this up. Follow us on Twitter at andintropod. Send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Our SoundCloud is, as always, at soundcloud.com slash pod. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, rate, review, do all that bullshit, but also tell a friend. Yes. Tell, uh, you know, record this to a tape and pass it among your small, close-knit community of fellow and intro pod tapers. Yes. Uh, and until then, we'll be back in another two weeks with another episode of And Introducing. Introducing.